this morning, in today's sermon, the Lord has taken us to the issue of life. We will look at the sixth commandment of the ten that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai long ago. And the sixth commandment is very simple. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. I worked real hard all week to memorize it, and here it is. You shall not murder. I think I got that right. I think you know that verse by memory. I think you knew that verse from memory as a little bitty child. And yet there is so much in these four small words. And we will see this morning that this is, a, this is more than mere a call to not destroy life. It is a call to cherish life, to see life as sanctified and holy and pure and good and a gift from God. As I thought about this commandment this week in context of all ten, you know, I really came to the conclusion that there's nine commandments that the world at large totally blows off. I mean, you think about it, the commandment to have no other gods, that is a very controversial commandment in our pluralistic society where people say there's all kinds of gods and all kinds of forms of God that we can worship. When you look at the command to have no carved images that you bow down to, that goes directly in contradiction to the American dream that so many of us get caught up in pursuing. When you see this call by God to not use the Lord's name in vain, our culture does not honor this whatsoever. Have you turned on TV recently? Have you been to Walmart? (laughs) Have you gone to a Ranger game or a Cowboys game recently? The Lord's name is used in vain all over the place. How about the Sabbath commandment to to rest on a day and to honor the Lord with that day? Our culture is not ambitious for Sabbath rest. How about honor your father and your mother? Our culture says blame your father and mother. How about do not steal? How about do not bear false witness? I will advance myself, whether it be in my career or in my status before people, if I can stretch the truth and blame others and and bear false witness against others to promote myself. How about coveting? You know, coveting is at the heart of the American dream. If you want it, go get it, right? Yet we come to this sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And I'm going to say to you, by and large, on the surface, all cultures around the world embrace this concept on the surface. We've got to be careful. But we do not have a murderous, physically murderous culture worldwide that we're dealing with. And this one commandment seems to be honored and obeyed by a vast majority of people in all different walks of life, all different cultures, all different nationalities. Murder is so contrary to the law of nature. Even a non-believer thinks murder is wrong. And I'm going to tell you this morning that while the murder rate, if a murder rate is above zero, that's a tragedy. But the murder rate is so small around the globe that we don't seem to be having a problem with this commandment. Let me give you some statistics. Just in the United States alone. The murder rate is, let me look here, 4.7 murders out of every 100,000 people. So almost 5 out of every 100,000 people are murdered a year. That's our murder rate right now. That's less than a percent of a percent. That's, that's a pretty low number. 
There's good news in this number because in 1992, what's that? That's almost 20 years ago. It was almost 10 people per 100,000. So our murder rate has been cut in half in America in the last 20 years. Uh, In 2010 alone, 14,748 people were murdered. There were 14,000 homicides out of 314 million people. So there's some evidence there that there is some valuing of this commandment, right? On the surface, it looks like as a culture, we embrace this truth and and we try to live it out. And that's true for believers or non-believers. However, we know it's not that simple. We know it's not this simple. Because our culture is becoming more and more a culture of murder. And it is growing in our midst. Even though I've told you we've cut our murder rate, our homicide rate in half, we're going to look at some other problems we have in fulfilling this commandment that aren't so readily evident. And I would say that we will find that the sixth commandment is probably the most blatantly and brutally violated of all of the Ten Commandments. So let's first start with defining murder. What does God mean when he says, you shall not murder? I believe every translation that you have in here, NIV, NASB, ESV, all the translations are going to say, you shall not murder. Long ago, the old King James said, you shall not kill. And we need to understand that the word kill and the word murder, there's a difference between those two words. And we really need to embrace the concept of you shall not murder. The Hebrew language had eight different terms for killing. And of all eight terms, every time it's talking about taking the life of a human being, it uses the same Hebrew word. It comes from the root ra. That's easy to remember. And so in the Bible, you never see when this sixth commandment is used and when, when the killing of people and this, the word that's used in the sixth commandment is, is out there, it's never speaking of the execution that is done to a person in our legal system i.e. the death penalty. It's never used when speaking of a soldier who kills somebody in an act of war. It's never used when killing an animal in sacrifice or for food. Those are different words for kill. There is a unique word that God has used for killing people. And we see that word today in English as murder. And so here's a real concise definition of what the word murder means in the context of the sixth commandment. And it is this. It is the unjust taking of a legally innocent life. Murder, according to the Sixth Commandment, is the unjust taking of a legally innocent life. And that is the context that we will be in as we look through the facts of this commandment. You know, if you do a survey of the Bible real quick, you will see that the very first sin that we have recorded in the Bible after Adam and Eve fall and eat of the tree that God forbid them to eat from, the very first sin that we have in the Bible is Cain and Abel. And Cain disabling Abel, taking Abel's life out of a fit of jealousy and anger and envy. So this is a very ancient sin. Man has committed this sin from the very, very beginning. The first offspring of Adam and Eve fell in this commandment. And we need to understand why it is that God forbids murder. I don't want us to just leave here and say, yep, shouldn't murder. No, I want us to understand to the nth degree why murder in the eyes of God is so heinous, is so wicked. 
And it starts in Genesis chapter 1. The first reason, and I'm going to give you three. There might be more, but we're going to look at three this morning. The first reason is man is made in God's image. That's big. That's where this murder discussion must start. God created in six days, and we know, we've said this many times from this pulpit, on that sixth day, God did something extra special. He created something on the sixth day like nothing else ever. He created man, the very last thing, before he sat down and rested. And at the end of day six, unlike all the other days, he said it was very good. And so man is the pinnacle of God's creation. He's not made anything more magnificent on earth than man, than human beings. Because it says in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men and women, males and females, bear the image of God. Don't you dare raise your hand and strike the image of God. In Genesis 9.6, boy, we have a huge passage here that we have to read in conjunction with the sixth commandment. In Genesis 9.6, God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for, because God made man in his own image. So God says if a man's blood is shed, in other words, if he is killed, if he is murdered, then the murderer must be so treated himself because man's made in the image of God. And you do not dare strike and take the life of one who's made with God's image. That is strong, strong language from God the Father himself. So number one, man is made in his image. Number two, life is a gift from God, it is his to give and his to take away. We see in the creation account in Genesis 2, when God formed man out of the dust, he breathed life into his nostrils. It's God who gives life. Life does not come from any other source. Every single breathing human being who bears the image of God attributes that to God speaking him into existence, breathing her into existence. And so we are destroying what God has brought about when we murder. And we're doing it against his most supreme creation. Number three, life and death are a sovereign act that is reserved only for God. I want you to look at Psalm 139. We're going to look at this a couple of, from a couple of different angles here this morning. Psalm 139, verse, uh, I'm, yeah, 139 verse, verses 13 through 16. Turn with me there, please. Here's what David writes in just an absolute moment of worship. He says this, For you formed my inward parts. Listen to God being the author of life here. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God did this. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. So there he is. He's giving life to David and to every one of us. He did this in every one of our, one of our lives. But listen to the last part of verse 16. He turns. In your book were written every one of them. 
the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So God has measured out in this unformed substance that he's now intricately weaving in in a mother's womb. He's also measured out a number of days and he's proclaimed them before they were ever realized. God gives life and God takes life back. And only he can do this. May no man do what God himself only can do. You know, I've got a great analogy for this. Everybody knows the Mona Lisa. Leonardo da Vinci. The Louvre in Paris. I want you to imagine. This is a masterpiece, right? People say this is the greatest portrait ever painted by anybody. It's so simple yet so profound, right? You can go on and on about the Mona Lisa. I want you to picture someone breaking into the Louvre with an exacto knife and a hammer to break the glass that's covering the painting and slashing the Mona Lisa to shreds. Just imagine, just imagine how the world would react to that. I dare say that we would fly flags at half-mast. I bet we would. The Mona Lisa is so revered and so renowned around the world. It is called the masterpiece of all paintings. And to have it tarnished and slashed and defaced would be a worldwide crime for most of the civilized world. And Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa. And what did he do? He did what every painter, what every artist does at the bottom right-hand corner. You'll see his mark, his image. And Mona Lisa is forever tied to Leonardo da Vinci and no one else. And I'm going to tell you this morning that every one of you, including me, is an absolute masterpiece. Absolute masterpiece. There will never, ever be another one of you. Ever. Even your offspring will not be you. You are so uniquely formed from the days of old in your mother's womb, intricately developed. And ultimately at the end, after you've been made so perfectly and so uniquely, one of a kind forever, at the end of all that, you bear a mark, an image. And that image says, mine. And the author who put that mark on there is God himself. So when someone goes and murders one of God's masterpieces, that is an absolute assault on the artist, God himself. It is an assault on the masterpiece, but it's an ultimate assault on the author, on the artist who created this perfect, one-of-a-kind forever work. That is what murder is, and that's serious business. There are some points about the taking of life that are very controversial. There are some ethical dilemmas that we live in every day as it relates to you shall not murder. And there is much confusion in all cultures around the world about what it means to murder and not. And I've got for us here this morning, I've got for us six ethical dilemmas as it relates to the sixth commandment. 
And I want us to be able to walk out of here as strong Christians who have a biblical basis for our stances on these six areas of controversy. Okay? And we need to understand as we look at these points of debate that God's people have always, have always recognized that the taking of life is wrong and the taking life in, in some cases is actually not only warranted, but required or permitted. Boy, that sounds controversial, doesn't it? So Christian people from days gone by in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the early church history, all the way up to today, Christian people have always said, while taking of life is not permitted according to the Sixth Commandment, there are some scenarios where it is right, biblically, and actually required by God. Controversial. Stay with me. And let's look. There's also some other scenarios that we call, we, we don't call murder that are murder. And we're going to look at those too. Those are the other, there's three of those and three controversial ones. So let's start in, first of all, with understanding again from Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Actually, I want to read 5 and 6. Here's what God says. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So there's language here that says there is a moment where the life of a man should be taken from him, and that's when he has shed the life of another man, because he is made in God's image. You stay with me as we work through this. How in the world are we to obey the sixth commandment and yet reckon for the life of men who have taken the lives of other men. As we consider this commandment, we must have as our priority that we are called as Christians to preserve life. Do not relax on that. We are called to promote life and preserve life and to keep life for as long as life can be had until God takes life away. We are to be proponents of preserving life. And there are six areas where this becomes controversial in our culture. First one. First one I want to talk about is war. Let's talk about just war. There are many in the church who are pacifists who say we should not ever go to war with any nation whatsoever. That was a huge, huge controversy in World War II. America was determined after World War I, was determined to be isolationists. And to not engage in a war. And it took a lot of leadership from Washington, D.C. to get our nation into the war. And we must fight that war. We had to engage in the war that was World War II. We had to. So how do we reconcile this with the Christian belief that we should not murder? Well, we have this theory that we call just war. And there are five components of just war. I'll just give them to you as bullet points real quick. There's five components that people from long ago that embrace the Bible say, this is what justifies a nation going to war with another nation. Because we're not warmongers. The first one is, war must be waged by a legitimate government. It cannot be a bunch of thugs that raise up and think they have a good cause and go fight the world. 
There's got to be a legitimate government that has been raised up by God that can declare war. And we're going to look at Romans 13, 1 just in a moment because God raises up governments. God puts kings on thrones and kings are responsible for discipline and protection and provisions for people. And so number one, a, a legitimate war must be fought for, with, with a legitimate government. Number two, the war waged must be for a worthy cause. I think World War II is a worthy cause. The killing of six million Jews cannot go untouched because it could have been 12 or 18 or 24 or 36 million people. So that's a just cause for us to go. And what are we doing in World War II? We're preserving life by fighting off those who are taking life. Number three, a just war is one that is waged defensively. Defensively, we don't go fight a war just to grab oil or territory. It's defensively fought with force that is proportional to the aggressor's attack. Okay? So when a little bitty nation bombs our embassy, we don't nuke the whole nation. Okay? We, we fight and we respond with proportional force so that we can bring together justice and we can preserve as much life as possible. Number four. A just war is waged against men who are armed and engaged as soldiers. We do not fight against unarmed civilians, right? That would not be preserving life as God calls for it. That would be murder. And then lastly, we do these first four only after every other means of reconciliation has been pursued and exhausted. So we don't run into war. And you've heard this throughout the ages in our, in our Gulf region wars, right? We've gone through all of these. And I do believe that there's a Christian stance that can be had towards war. And it's called just war. And it's fought for the preservation of life. How about the second one? The second one is self-defense. This is the protection of one's self or one's family or someone that's in proximity to us. There is a, a cause that can be had for defending the innocent, in protecting their lives and taking the life of someone else. It's a tragic situation, but these scenarios do exist. They exist in all walks of life. They exist in our schools. They exist in our post offices, in our places of work, in our places of worship. And there is a call to protect life by taking the life of one who is endangering life. And it's a very tough call. And we pray that God would never have any of us in those situations. But we've got to be ready to preserve life for the sake of God. This is not a place that we take and abuse. Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that says, If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him also. That is not saying if your wife is being mugged by someone to just sit there and say, Well, turn the other cheek, sweetheart. Hopefully it will all work out. That is sin. There is a call for aggressive reaction and to protect this woman from this assault no the turn the other cheek is when you've been insulted by someone it's not when your life's in jeopardy it's when your reputation's in jeopardy that you turn the other cheek and so we need to make certain that we don't abuse that and yet we also need to be certain that we're not looking for opportunities to waste somebody right we need to be preservers of life in all circumstances. Number three, controversy, capital punishment. What do Christians do with the death penalty? 
What a magnificent debate we're having in our culture about the death penalty. And man, we've got to be so careful about how we apply Genesis 9-6. If a man sheds the blood of another man, so his blood must be shed because he's made in the image of God. We've got to be so careful about how we administer capital punishment. But there is a biblical case to be made for honoring God's command in the Sixth Commandment. This is true in the Old Testament. I just gave you Genesis 9-6. Let's look at the New Testament. Capital punishment is very clear in Romans chapter 13. I'll let you turn there if you want, but just listen. God has established government. Listen to this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Governments. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I see here clear evidence that God raises up governments, gives them authority, gives them, as Paul says, a sword, and that sword is to be used to deliver his wrath on the wrongdoer in the here and now on this earth. God will deal with his wrath on the wrongdoer for all of eternity. But there is a dealing with the wrongdoer on earth. And it is using the sword by a legitimate government. Not a bunch of guys that go get a rope or a chain. But a legitimate government and a legitimate legal system that has been established by God. There is a call to take life from those who would take the life of others. I think we can stand on really good biblical ground here when we support capital punishment. But, oh, do we have to be careful in capital punishment, much like we have to be careful when it comes to just war. We've got to have an absolutely guilty man before we take that man's life. And, boy, we've got to pray through that. I had a talk a couple of weeks ago with a guy that got to tour Huntsville in the death, the death chamber and, and just in, in looking at all the intricacies of that and all the potentials for loopholes and controversy, it's a frightening, frightening place to be as one of these government officials determining when to inject. But there is a, clay, a case, there is a biblical case for capital punishment. And we've got to be very humble and very prayerful before we implement it. So there's three, just war, self-defense, capital punishment. Here's three more. We have to talk about, if we talk about you shall not murder, we have to talk about suicide. We have to. Because suicide is self-murder. Let's just be real clear about this. It is self-inflicted murder. And it is a person who, who has struck the image of God in themselves. And it is a heinous crime... It's not the unforgivable sin like many would teach, okay? It is not the unforgivable sin. We've got to be careful to call it, though. We don't know what was going on in the person's heart towards the Lord. 
But we can't automatically say it's the unforgivable sin because when you're dead, you can't repent of it. That's not biblically sound. And there are Christian people, oh, there are Christian people that for whatever reason get to their wits end and they make a they, they sin, they sin in the moment. But that sin, if they believe in Christ on the cross and resurrected, does not prohibit them from eternal life with Jesus. And we can't really get into that person's heart to know. And I will say this, the person that says, well, I believe in Jesus Christ, so this taken to my own life is no big deal. Be careful. Because that's probably fruit that's being born that's saying you really don't believe. You've got to be careful with those kinds of words. That cheap grace mentality might be evidence that you have not received the grace of God fully. Suicide is seriously, deadly dangerous in more ways than one. You know what suicide says? Suicide says probably one of two things. First one is, God made a mistake when he made me. I'm a flawed portrait. I am not a masterpiece. And that is oh so wrong because you were intricately made long ago in your mother's womb. And there will never be another like you. And God intended you to be exactly how you are. Who are we to say to our maker? Who, who is the clay? The clay cannot say back to the potter, why have you made me this way? Right? We must say, God intricately made me, and this is where I am, and yes, I'm struggling, and I live in a fallen world, but my God is big enough that he is not going to abandon his masterpiece. And Father, I don't see a masterpiece when I look at myself in the mirror right now, but I'm going to trust that I'm a masterpiece because you made me and I bear your image. Thus, I'm a masterpiece because you're not going to put your image on trash. That's so true. And I preach this this morning because if there's anyone in this room that's ever entertained suicide, you have to listen to this and understand what it says to God, your maker. And he's saying to you, your masterpiece, your masterpiece. And you may not feel like it in this life right now, but I assure you, if you believe in Jesus Christ and that he died in your place and that he rose from the dead on the third day, you will be with him forever in heaven where you absolutely will fulfill the calling of masterpiece. I promise it's true and it's all straight out of here. Here's the second thing suicide says. It says, I have made such a mess of what God's given me that he can't repair this. And if that's true, we're all in trouble. Every last one of us in this room is deeply in trouble. But God does miracles. Look at what God did in the life of Saul, also known as Paul. Is Paul not a man that could say, I have made such a wreck of my life that God cannot overcome this. And yet God raises him up to be an apostle who wrote 13 books in this Bible. If there's anyone that's ever more tarnished the image that God made him in, it was Saul, Paul. And yet God flips him and cleans him up and uses him for incredible, incredible things. I'm preaching to you from Paul this morning. God overcame what Paul had done with his life up to that point. So do not buy into the lie that the enemy whispers in your ear 
God made you flawed, you're messed up. Or, you've messed up so much, God can't overcome this. That is a lie from the father of lies who was a murderer from the very beginning. So suicide. Suicide is a very, very small view of God. In fact, suicide takes God out of the mix and puts him over here and just looks at life in a godless perspective in that moment. Don't be tempted to go there. Number five. Our culture has been so wickedly deceived. The minute I say that, it doesn't even sound right. I, we, we are deceiving ourselves, and I don't mean us, I mean our society. The fifth one is abortion. Our culture is absolutely wickedly deceived and confused, and I think it knows it. I think there are many in our culture that, whose hearts have been so hardened. Let me give you some statistics. Annually, um, the abortion rate is astronomical. Since Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, there's been 55 million abortions in America alone. I found a website that had worldwide statistics that would boggle the mind. Hundreds of millions. Boggle the mind. I don't know to believe them or not, but the stats are atrocious. 55 million in the last 40 or so years. The annual rate of abortion grew from 1973 to 1990. Every year it just grew after it was made legal. And yet, there is some good news because from the early, early 90s until now, about 1990 until now, the abortion rate has been declining year after year after year. The peak in 1990 was 1.6 million babies in that one year. 1.6 million in that one year. I just quoted to you 2010 homicide rates in America, 14,000. 1.6 million aborted in 1990. In 2010, the number was down to 1.06 million. So what, 1,060,000 or so babies aborted. So we've lopped off 600,000 abortions from 1990 to now. And there is much traction being gained. There is a lot of legislation being enacted that's going to curb this further. And we, as the church of Jesus Christ, need to stay the course and fight this battle financially, prayerfully, and with our time, and with our words, and with our counsel. But God is raising up this army to fight this battle against the enemy. And we're beginning to see some traction. Let's stay the course, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. There's clear evidence that mankind has been convicted of this murder. You know, our culture wants to say this is not murder, but I can show you evidence that they absolutely know this is murder. You just look at their vocabulary. Just watch the abortionists' vocabulary that they choose to use. First of all, we see that we don't reference this as a baby. We call it a fetus. Okay? So we start using language. We twist words. Babies are thrown out. Fetus is the one that we use. And then, you know what? Fetus got too close to humanity. So what did we start calling it? Tissue. Look how far we go from baby to tissue. And this is all language that the abortionists use 
to deaden the conviction that they're murdering. Because it doesn't sound the same to say we're dealing with tissue versus a baby. We, we, we don't use the term right to abortion. We use pro-choice. And I just want to defend the woman's right to choose. Well, I don't want to use the bomber's right to choose. I, I don't want to protect the bomber's right to choose. The sniper's right to choose. The gangster's right to choose. But I want the mother's right to choose. You see what's happening here. Now we have to have a debate about when a life is a life or when tissue becomes human tissue. We have backed this so far down. And I'm going to tell you from Psalm 139 that you formed my inward parts, God, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you. It's hidden from man. The frame of a baby minutes into conception is hidden from mankind. But right here, it is not hidden from the eyes of God. When conception happens, His image has been stamped. Yes, on tissue that will become a fetus. His image is there. And to raise your hand and strike the image of God in the womb of a mother, minutes after conception, is murder. Period. So we do much to medicate and to to numb our hearts to what we're doing. I'm talking about our culture. I'm not saying us in this room. Our culture does much to disguise murder. And so I'm back to how I intro this sermon. 14,000 people, 14,000 homicides in 2010 out of 314 million people sounds pretty good, right? But let's add a million people in that in the abortion cause. And we are a murderous culture. There's one last one. And it's called euthanasia. And it is the next front in the war against life. And I'm going to tell you this morning that if we are a culture that will abort babies in mama's wombs, then we will become a culture that will take out Elderly people that can't take care of themselves. It is only to be expected that when we have people that won't contribute to society or drain society, we will remedy that by removing them from society. And there are people in our society moving in this direction. Do you understand that our health care laws have provisions in them that say there is an age limit to certain organ transplants and medical procedures that someone can be eligible for. The thinking is that the older you are, the less worth it you are to invest in a transplant or a medical procedure. That is in and around our health care laws as a nation right this minute. And this started really ramping up long ago with Dr. Kevorkian in Michigan. You remember those days? Okay. The doctor of death. And it has only grown in all kinds of cultures around the world. And so we have got another front on this war to protect life that we're going to have to fight. And I think we're going to be fighting a two-front war. One front is abortion. One front is euthanasia. And we as a church need to be people that promote the sixth commandment for the glory of God. Because unborn and old all Bear the image of God. Every one of them is a masterpiece.
And we cannot sit disinterested and disengaged saying, well, I'm glad I don't have that temptation. Glad I don't have that problem. It is our problem because he is our God. So there's six, just war, self-defense, death penalty, abortion, euthanasia, and suicide. But I can't leave the sermon yet because there's one more form of murder that we've got to address. If I don't say what I'm going to say next, then I have not preached fully on the Sixth Commandment. It will be an incomplete sermon that will not honor the Lord fully. For you see, there is something that has been taught about this Sixth Commandment very, very intentionally. We looked at it on July 7th of 2013. It's found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And Jesus Christ took the sixth commandment in his Sermon on the Mount, and he said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, Mount Sinai, You shall not murder. And everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. So he just quoted the sixth commandment. But then he says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And everyone who says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And in that brief two-sentence verse, Jesus Christ just took the sixth commandment and applied it to a heartfelt attitude towards God's perfect masterpieces. And he has said that if you are angry at your brother, You are liable as if you killed him because anger is spiritual heart murder. And we had a hard sermon that July 7th. I'm still talking with some of you about that sermon. And so my point is in bringing this up, we are all desperate for forgiveness for violating the sixth commandment. We cannot say I've not shot someone. I've not aborted someone. I've not taken my life. I've not fought an unjust war. We, we can't say those things and say I'm clean. Because every one of us, and I know this is true, this is not too bold. This is pretty simple for me to say. Every one of us has had anger towards our brother. Towards our husband. Towards our wife. Towards our mom and our dad. I dare say towards our pastors. I dare say towards our congregation. We are all guilty of heartfelt anger that Jesus Christ says is deserving of the punishment that comes with physical murder. The hell of fire. So we're in a desperate way this morning. We've got a culture that we've got to engage in to promote life. But we've got a heart that we've got to cultivate that promotes life. And here's how we do it. Here's how we fight this heart battle. We believe in Jesus Christ. Who died on a cross even though he committed no sin. He kept every law that God ever wrote to perfection. 
He did nothing wrong, yet he died in our place. And watch this. How did Jesus Christ die? Murder. Jesus Christ was murdered. The sixth commandment was violated against him. And he hung on a cross for those that would break the sixth commandment. And he hung on the cross by people breaking the sixth commandment against him. You've broken the sixth commandment with me. (laughs) And Jesus Christ took that and experienced that to the full. I'm preaching to you much like Peter did in Solomon's portico back in Acts chapter 2. Because Peter challenged all the Jewish people that were within earshot of him. And he told the whole story of, of Israel and God. And then he brought it to Jesus Christ. And he said, Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, he says, you crucified him. You killed him. And I'm going to say to you this morning... That largely, in a way, we crucified Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ had to die for our sins. If if there's no sin in the world, Jesus Christ doesn't come to die. And Jesus Christ died for all the sins that had committed up to that point when he was on earth. And he died for every sin that would be committed after his resurrection until he comes again that second time. And so our sin required Jesus Christ to hang on a cross As a sixth commandment victim. And he's hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't murder them back. And he looked at that cross, Hebrews tells us, with joy. Because he knew that by experiencing a sixth commandment violation personally, he was going to gather all of us to be in a right standing with God the Father. Should we believe in him and his resurrection and his pending second coming. Do you believe that this morning? Because if you do, you are forgiven for all of your Sixth Commandment violations. It's a promise. And it only happens through believing in the one who was violated according to the Sixth Commandment. Man, is God good? So here's how I'll conclude. I want to give you a real succinct statement for why murder is wrong and you have to understand why murder is wrong because number one you have to ask why was man created man was created to bear his image and in bearing his image man was created to worship god and enjoy him forever in the life here and now and for all of eternity in his presence and so when a person murder someone, that killer is actually robbing God of potential worship. You see this? If someone takes the life of this person, that person no longer is in a position to worship God on this earth. And God put him on this earth to worship him and to bring glory and honor to him. And so it is actually robbing God of God's intended purpose for that person to exist because we only exist to worship God and give him glory. It's the only reason human being was ever made. And when we take the life of an image bearer of God, we are robbing God of that opportunity. That's serious business. So I conclude with this statement. 
You shall not murder in all the ways that we've talked about, including the heart. Because that is a sin not against the person that you're murdering. That is a sin first and foremost against the the artist who made the masterpiece that you're defacing. That is why we are called so severely to embrace this sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Let's pray. Father, it's four short, simple words. You shall not murder. But as we look at the rest of the counsel of your scriptures, there is so much behind these words. Father, I pray that you have been glorified here this morning because I have stood before your people and I have called you a grand and excellent artist. And I've acknowledged your perfect, unique work that we call a masterpiece, the human life. I pray, Father, that you would just receive that as worship, that, that my, my brothers and sisters in this room would embrace me in, in this, and that together we would look to you and say, yes, God, you are a master artist, and you have created a masterpiece, and we will honor you by honoring your work in humanity. Father, if that's all that happens today, if we just leave here saying you are great, then we've had church. Father, we pray for the lives around the world that are in jeopardy right now. Some lives are in jeopardy because they've proclaimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're going to lose their life for that. We've got pastors imprisoned in Iran for that. And other places around the world that we don't even know, we pray for them right now that you would preserve their life so they can continue to bring glory and honor to you in their words and their actions and even in their thoughts. Father, there are babies right now in their mother's womb. And their mamas are, are thinking and are tempted to think wrongly about what's inside of them. Would you protect these lives? Would you strike down this abortion rate in the world, in America? Would you drive it lower and lower? Would you do away with it, Father? Would you create in us a culture that values life? Father, I pray for our hearts that we would worship you with what we think about one another. Father, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. You know our hearts better than we even do. Would you guide us away from murderous thoughts towards our brothers and sisters and moms and dads and husbands and wives? Would you cause us to promote them as a masterpiece made by you? Father, we thank you so much for this time to open your word this morning. I pray that it would wash us and clean us all day and all week long until you bring us back together again here next Sunday. And it's in the honorable name of Jesus Christ that I ask all of this. Amen.